Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, the good news and the bad news of a connected world is that, well, we're more connected. And in that lies the question of how we create and maintain meaningful connections that feel real and authentic. I mean, I know if we've buzzed around on social media and you, and you may connect with a number of people, but how many of them do you actually know? And then even beyond that, if you, even if you know them, how you know authentic or how real do you feel like your conversations are, or how much you're actually connecting as a person with folks, I think is, is a legit and, and tough question to really think about. Given the flame wars, tribalism, and trolling of Twitter and Facebook, it can be really difficult to find threads of humanism in the digital age. In other words, it can feel increasingly difficult to maintain a sense of dialogue online, as if we're really listening to each other and hearing one another as equals. So to explore these questions, we have on today's show, Ken Gordon, and Ken is the Principal Communications Specialist at EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum, for those who may not know, and you all should know what EPAM Continuum is, mm -hmm. is located in Boston and has over 30 years of experience in delivering design solutions for clients across a wide range of industries. And a lot of clients that whose name you would know well, and a lot of solutions that you would be familiar with. Now, it's Ken's job to communicate the work that they do, the successes they have, and to create content that stimulates thought and engages readers to make meaningful connections between people possible through the words that Ken authors for EPAM Continuum. We chat with Ken not only about his current work, which is really interesting, but also his journey through working with organizations like the Partnership for Excellence in Jewish Education, his teaching of creative writing, and his work as a freelance author. Now, Ken comes from a literary background, and it's interesting to hear his thoughts about how that translates in a clickbait era, and how Ken approaches his, his philosophy around content creation and audience engagement how to not add to the noise, but add to the meaningfulness that people are experiencing online. We also explore the challenges of conducting ethnographic-based design work in a pandemic and how EPAM Continuum maintains their unique approach in a virtual environment, what the tools they use are, what the challenges they face are, and how they overcome that to continue to deliver top-notch solutions for their clients. And finally, we discussed the importance of keeping a beginner's mind in doing design work and engaging with clients, as well as a spirit and practice of democratic innovation when you're working with these clients. And we also talk about how to create an environment of psychological safety so you can create creative solutions in the design process. Hope you enjoy our chat. Yeah, I think it's like, you know, what, what kind of value can we add to our day that isn't necessarily, quote unquote, value add or revenue generating? Yeah. And especially when you have to do it like this, right? It's hard to arrange for this. It's hard to even get in the right um, frame of mind 
to have uh, a completely non-agenda-driven conversation. Like you kind of have to go, yeah, I'm not going to – I'm just going to connect with Gary and go. And like what we're doing right now is exactly how right. it has to happen. It's like you can't be looking at your bullet points. Going, oh, we've got to get to this. Because, uh, you know, on my podcast and on your podcast too, I'm sure you have things you've got to hit. But it's like I think the real value, the real improvisational, spontaneous, you know, wisdom happens when you're able to let go and just see what happens, where your mind goes and mine goes. And in that moment, that's what's going on. And that's what you want to try and you know, get this, this has been the biggest challenge of teaching online, quite frankly. I, I, over the summer, I took my school, gave two opportunities for faculty, actually three, I designed one of them or co-designed one of them, mm-hmm. three opportunities for faculty to engage in how to teach online and also create better content. And it really does become a challenge in that, you, you know, there's a lot of checklists, man. Mm. I mean, is it ADA compliant? Check these boxes. Yeah. Are you, what's the syllabus look like? Check these boxes. You know, is your Blackboard site set up? Check these boxes. And that, I love that term, improvisational wisdom. Yeah. You know, really, really falls, can fall by the wayside, even though that's where the, like, the magic can happen. Well, one of the things I've talked about for a long time is this idea of what I want to do is like live learning. And it's basically about using social media as an educational medium, first and foremost. And the idea being that you as a uh, social mediator, me as a social mediator and the people I talk to are there to learn before an audience and to make there's a sort of drama, an active drama of uh, learning and education, self-education and other education. And it's like, it requires like a willingness to look like an idiot to, to screw up in front of people. But when everybody's doing it together, it, it is really super uh, community building and empowering. And that's sort of what I try and do when I'm right. engaging this stuff. So that's maybe something we can talk about. Well, before we get you there, take me back a little bit. How's a, how does an English major end up at one of the, I don't know, how would you describe EPAM, EPAM continuum? One of the, one of the blankest companies in the world. Super cool. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's a super cool company. I, I, I don't know that I'd want to give any official uh, name to it, but we're great with um, innovation design. That sort of collaborative consulting stuff. It really is about, you know, meeting the, the kind of stuff you know about, which is when small and big data get together, what can you really do? And what was your trajectory to ending up where you were there right now? Yeah, no, well, I was, I'll tell you what, my uh, company put out an ad and they said, we're looking to hire two people in the marketing department. And here are 24 things we're looking for from these folks. What can you do? And I went down the list and I said, I can do content creation. I could do social media and I can do um, community building. And I basically wrote a really strong letter explaining how I've done this previously in my older life and how I would do it for this amazing company that I see. Then they brought me in five times and I met five times, five times and I met 20 people over those five <laughs> times. And by the time I was done, I had iterated what my job was going to be. I'd made a whole bunch of allies and I was ready to get to work. And it's, I've pretty much been working and iterating off of that ever since. So it really is about this sort of job I've created for myself and, you know, and it shifts as the needs of the company shifts and uh, as my uh, interest shifts. And um, that's really what happened. That's where that comes from. So when you, you know, when you're talking about content creation, is there a difference between, you know, because you can, a lot of people talk about content creation now and being, you know, generate content generators. You're coming <laughs> at it from an English perspective, right? So you yeah. got a BA in English, you got an MA in English. 
what's what's it mean to approach content creation from an English background versus let's say like a marketing background or a graphic design background or some other kind of background? Does that does that make a difference at all? It does to me. I mean, and I think it does to the uh, people who r- respond strongly to the stuff I do and the people I coach with. When you're an English major, when you study literature, the thing you're trying to do is get rid of the cliché. You're trying to say something that isn't uh, mass driven it's unique it's that that sort of thing you're driving for right literature is is saying that previously unsaid you know that idea and so right. it, it's a different level it's a different um approach to the material when you're creating and so it's sort of like um because a lot of marketing is just about trying to tap into the mass mind and only that but what i'm really trying to do is to find people who are really saying the unique thing and mm. saying when they can do that and encouraging them, people like you know, like Toby, who we've worked with both before. Right, he's a super unique guy, and he really has some interesting ways of expressing himself. And the last thing I would want to do was to sort of clip his individuality with you know my editorial shears. Like I want that guy to fly, you know, under the power of his own voice. And so part of what I need to do is sort of encourage people to find what that voice is and really express it. And I do that. I, I, I basically treat myself as a kind of a coach and to find the talent within my organization and help uh, those folks sing louder and better and more like themselves than they would otherwise. Right. You, know, you mentioned like the collective mind and if, if this moment teaches us anything, it's you know, the, the, the danger as we all, I'm a sociologist, as we've long known, the dangers of the collective mind. I think it's, you know, from a from a literary perspective, correct me if I'm wrong on this, getting people to feel something that they haven't felt necessarily or don't know that, that, that that's there versus pandering to whatever the collective consciousness is in some kind of way, right? I mean, I think marketing, for a lot of good reasons, gets a bad rap. Um, Bill Hicks, you know, has a great, you know, comedian Bill Hicks has a great rant about like, you know, marketers being the devil, you know, <laughs> and, you know, this idea of, getting at the collective id to sell you, you know, toothpaste versus getting someone to feel empathy and emotion around the meaning of some product that is more, more, what, what am I trying to say? Altruistic, more meaningful, Mm -hmm. more life affirming something, right? Is that making sense? Yeah. No, I mean, basically the way I uh, convinced the company to hire me was they said, you're a human centered design company. What you need is a humanist to help tell your story to find that voice and i still believe in that you know i I definitely believe that um if you're going to believe in this idea of really understanding the human experience and creating um things for humans that fit in their lives it has to be told in a human voice and it has to be told with empathy and it has to be uh to some higher purpose i think we have never talked about this but i'm glad you brought this up because two years ago now I was at a applied sociology conference and I was part of a session that was, um, a, you know, in honor of this guy named Jay Weinstein. So Jay was this sociologist, uh, who was also a, a humanist and we were talking about, you know, tributes of Jay Weinstein. And I did exactly what you're describing. I was linking up participatory action research or participatory design to humanism. Mm-hmm. I don't know other than you. And maybe this is, exists all over the literature. I don't recall having seen a lot of that connection. When you, people are talking about participatory design, it's not framed necessarily in terms of humanism. Mm-hmm. Have you? I mean, I, have you come across other people talking about it in that way? I, I don't know that there's a great. I'm not a scholar of you know design. Well, who is? I mean, who is Ken? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm <laughs> who found his way into the design world, and I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll cop to that. But what I know for sure is that when you can. Ad- 
establish a legitimate dialogue with someone, that's like the, that's the kind of uh, humanism in action that really matters, right? That really is when you can allow yourself to hear what someone else is really saying, and then allow it so that you can be heard as well. That's what doing. And the basis of just about everything I do is to create that dialogue. Like I want to write a piece of content that will make you respond to it and come at me with your own best um, words and thoughts and feelings on it. And then we could talk about that and see where that goes. That thing we created by the two of us having a conversation. Like we've done that ourselves. Like I, right. you and I have actually done that, but I want to do that all the time with, with everyone. Like I don't think uh, the point of a piece is to get clicks it's to engage someone else and to, to really engage that person in the most deep way you possibly can. And so that's what I'm always, always, always looking for is that engagement first. And uh, it's hard, truthfully. Yeah. And it requires more work uh, than a lot of people realize. And sometimes it requires too much work. You know, we're right. the subject matter experts I work with are busy folks. And so part of my job is to sort of really hang in there and really encourage them. I, I it, it Part of what I put into it is encouragement. Like I spend a lot of time understanding and helping people to say, let's make the time to work on this. Let's work this draft through. Let's really look at paragraph seven, you know, whatever it is. And because when you really put the time into it, that's when you craft something that's going to, that's going to have an effect on someone else's, uh, you know, on their, on their mind, really. Is it is it frustrating at all in the in the sense of you know you don't know right I mean you can put content out there into the world and people can read it but you you don't necessarily what's the feedback mechanism to let you know that you've achieved in this goal of having a, an impact on them in some kind of meaningful deep humanistic kind of way yeah no it's a good question I'll tell you what it isn't it isn't vanity metrics what it is is when I get an email from somebody saying in their true voice their response to it or it's, we, we get into a long twitter conversation about whatever it was right like i could it's 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 qualitative that's what it is it's not quantitative for sure right it, it was I, today it was my first day of class at, for the semester i'm mm-hmm. teaching all online yeah and one of the things that we were taught we were talking about with the students is discussion boards you know wither the discussion board because for a, a lot of faculty, the idea is, you know, make students engage in a discussion board. <laughs> and I am going to grade you, right? I'm going to think about this check- checklist, right? I'm going to grade you that everybody needs to post something to the discussion board in this thread and also respond to somebody in the discussion board at least one time each in order for you to receive two points for that discussion thread. And then we will add up those points throughout the semester and that'll give you your base grade for virtual participation uh, and community uh, building into the discussion. Uh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, so, sounds fantastic. Doesn't it? Well, it's just, if, when you put, when you make it transactional like that, that's your, you're immediately putting such a burden on, on the whole, whatever's going to come out of it. That it's really, really hard to make. I, for a while there, I actually would go around and give a speech to some of my little groups, in my company. I was like, guys, listen, it's really important to me that you all click through because my metrics are matter and blah, blah, blah. It's my job. And this is how we engage. And I realized it, I was just putting too much pressure on everybody to do it. Like you really can't, um, compel an authentic um, response from people. You know, you could force them to do stuff, but if if what you're trying to do, what I say I'm trying to do, is get that real deep engagement, right. it can't be through coercion of any sort. And so it's you know it's it's a challenge. I am not going to lie; it is hard, and I don't always succeed in doing it the way I want to. But um, 
you know, I'm doubling and tripling down that if you're really committed to the content, to producing excellent stuff, the right people will get to it and you will be able to build the right relationships. I mean, sometimes I have to go out and reach out to people the way you do, right? To bring right. people onto your podcast. And I'm actually really successful about it because I mm-hmm. know these folks. I can talk to them. I can ask them good questions and they feel someone responding to the, um, to the stuff they put out into the world. They feel the power of a good, thoughtful question and they want to talk more. You know, we've talked a little about this. Like I always tell everybody, what I'm engaged in is not marketing, but education. That's sort of dialectic. Either you're teaching or you're learning. If you're always moving between those two sort of functions, you're doing the right thing. And make sure you're doing it by being a little more conscious of how you participate in the social media environment, let's say, you know. Has that always been part of your thing? I mean, I know you were looking at your LinkedIn partnership for excellence in Jewish education, right? You, that's, that's an organization that you were working with. Yeah. That was a, a national organization of Jewish day schools. And actually okay. I built a whole, we, we created a whole community called Jed lab, which is like huge. When I got into that world, there was no sort of unifying Jewish education thing. There are day schools and, and temple congregational schools and religious schools. And none of them would talk to each other. And then me and a friend of mine, my friend Yechiel got really frustrated with this. And we said, let's, let's just throw it all open and create this kind of lab. We called it Jed lab. And we were inspired by the MIT Media Lab. And the idea being we would just go in there and throw ideas out and and get people to um, talk without any agenda. And it was based on this guy, on the the great um, German-Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, who talked right. about this idea of dialogue is, is sort of I and thou. This idea right. that when you um, really connect with another person, when you're doing that, that's holiness. When you really are in deep dialogue with a person – Two human beings to it, the, the the relationship that you're building there is the is the thing you want, and that's right. that was really like the, the the thing we were going for, and I've been working on that ever since, really, in in various guises. It's such a yeah. I went to a Catholic school, mm-hmm. and it's interesting when you, you know anybody starts to think about a school under the auspices of a particular belief system that in and of itself has no necessarily, it doesn't have a coherence, right? So you can say, you know, it's Catholic, you know, there's a difference between Loyola, which is Jesuit, yep. and Catholic University, right? They're in terms of a philosophy, right? And it's both Catholic. And so going with like this idea of Jewish education, how are you trying to resolve some of the internal distinctions that can exist within Judaism as a belief system, as a religious system, mm-hmm. to create a kind of, programmatic uh, synthesis across all of those things. Well, you know, one of the great strengths of, of Judaism is that it's, 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 it's a culture of questions. It's not looking okay. to resolve. It's actually looking to pull apart. It's, it's, Interesting. It, it really is about saying, what question do you need to ask next? Right. Really, there's the whole thing about asking, answering a question with a question. That's a thing. And so, it's a, so, so, so Socrates was actually a Jewish scholar. Yeah. Socratic method. Baruch Hashem, as they say. Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it is. It really is about um, using the question, the probing question as a means of, of, learn, of, of moving toward wisdom more. Toward yeah. Understanding. It's, it's a thing. Like it really isn't about control. It is more about, well, what if? And that what if spirit is, is you know, a huge part of the innovation world, which is one of the reasons I feel so at home in here and I feel uh, – comfortable and familiar with it. 
I always enjoyed taking religion classes, um, both at, from eighth grade till graduate high school is Catholic school. I always enjoyed religious classes when it was taught by like one of the Christian brothers because they would get into it, right? And by get into it, I mean allow the questioning often. Like the one of the best classes I had was, was bro- Brother Joe, mm-hmm. um, who, Brother Joseph Joswiak, who was, uh, <laughs> you know, very, very encouraging of those questioning, right? You know, let's, let's analyze the text. Let's look at the gospel. Let's talk about, um, you know, what this is inspiring in you in terms of seeking knowledge, right? Versus, um, you know, my parents' approach, which was do this because I said so, right? And this is the doctrine. This is the dogma. Yeah. You can't question it. Yeah. No, that's great stuff. I mean, my, my son's bar mitzvah is all about how he doesn't believe in God. You know, it was like well, there you go. bar mitzvah speech. <laughs> and it's was, it was like, yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. So with, with, with that then, you know, was there pushback from other, when you're working in this organization under this idea of, you know, Judaism, Jewish education, was everyone, did everyone share the perspective that you were expressing around, you know, the idea here is to question stuff. You know, the idea is to be uh, introspective. And I guess if it's the word introspective, question what's inside and question what's around us. Yeah. Well, the thing was, it was its own community, right? So it really wasn't, there was nobody to report to on this. This is okay. everybody did. It was a grassroots thing. Oh. And it it was it was recognized that it was there was value there because everybody from every part of the ecosystem was involved, but it was right. definitely not overseen by the powers that be. And it might have been had they been, they might have said, "What are you doing? Why are you doing? Why are you even spending time on this so much?" Um, uh, but th- that wasn't the case. It was it was definitely an organic and independent thing. Were there powers that are there powers that be in in Judaism in the Jewish education world? Sure, I mean okay. it's, it's communal life. So in any kind of communal life, there are those people. I mean, it's, it's funny because no if that's what you're asking, right? There's no. Yeah, pope. I mean, it's, I think I think it, you know, I used to give classes. I used to give you know educational um, you know workshops on Islam. I'm not Muslim, but I'm Arab American. So, you know, I, I, as a Christian, as a Catholic, I can go up there and talk about Islam without people saying, you're just saying that because you're Muslim. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I said about, you know, I said, Islam is very democratic. People look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, well, there's no center authority, yep. like in Catholicism. Yep. By that, I mean, people can have a relationship with God. They can interpret text. There are learned scholars that can go to Al-Azhar or wherever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I know with Shiaism versus Sunniism, there's distinctions. Without getting into the weeds, it's you and your relationship with God and, and, and the Quran. You're not interpreting it. It's the word of God. But there are great, you know, a lot of gradients there. Yeah. Versus Catholicism, which is, what did the Pope say? What did the Cardinal say? Yeah. And, and I think, it's, it, you know, for, in terms of innovation, bringing that over to innovation, when you have a decentralized authority, there can be more opportunity for innovation both in terms of positive outcomes and also negative outcomes. Yeah. Versus a top down, which is it's much more constrained, but the quality control, the, the, the amount of degrees of freedom you have are far less um, extensive. Yeah. No, I mean, you're onto something. And the, one of the challenges for Jewish education was that it doesn't scale because it's so decentralized. Okay. Right. So you can't have sweeping reforms across the whole field because there's no one to implement such sweeping reforms. You know, there isn't a superintendent of everybody. It doesn't exist. Right. So it really, it's, 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 it really is the two sides of the coin. You have a lot of potential freedom to innovate, but you really aren't going to get, uh, it's hard to have a national 
um, change. It's very actually as 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 our conversations often do pinballing all over the place reminds me of police reform actually <laughs> because in, in policing there's no centralized authority right right you know each each department I mean operates under a state attorney general but each department can be its unique thing so trying to achieve quote unquote police reform can be really challenging because of the ways in which we have a decentralized a law enforcement system at the state level, federal level, something else, but the state levels, it's completely decentralized. Good thing in that, you know, it's, you know, we don't have a federalized law enforcement structure throughout the country, right? Bad thing in that it's harder to make systemic changes quickly because of there's so many different elements you'd have to reach. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, uh, decentralization has some serious drawbacks and it could lead to huge problems as you're alluding to. Right. I mean, right. it's, it's really, really, um, an interesting balance. And I think part of that is understanding the, the, uh, the, the strain between, uh, centralization and decentralization, probably in a healthy system, there's, there's a, there's a battle back and forth between the two, um, tendencies. Right. So, yeah, well, I think so because, you know, both, the centralized authority can mitigate any kind of change. And now if you want to talk about whether it's Jewish education, policing, or organizational change, mm-hmm. you know, a centralized authority can really put a damper on any kind of broader change. At the same time, you need a centralized authority in some ways to have buy-in in order to make that change systemic um, more quickly. And this is always one of the interesting things about organizational change. I'd be curious about how you all at Continuum deal with this when you do your projects. You want to create a foundational movement of employees to adopt a change. Yeah. At the same time, you need organiz- leadership buy-in. Otherwise, people aren't going to, they're not going to see that as a beacon of where they should be aiming for. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So how do you all like kind of manage both not making it top down because then it's by mandate, it's by fiat, it's transactional, thou shalt do this, but it's not really internalized yeah. versus having people adopt it from the bottom up, but not necessarily have it embraced fully beyond maybe lip service by leadership. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a trick. And one of the things we're good at is getting sort of organizational buy-in and doing it on a, on a, on a sort of... Um, a big picture manner. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna see your Martin Buber reference. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna raise you another German. Okay. With Max Weber. Oh right. Sure. I know. I'm gonna go with Max Weber. Um well this idea of the gilded cage, mm. right? Or the golden cage, where we create the bureaucracies in which we become entombed. Mm. So speaking as a professor, I've been in those conversations. You know what would be great? If we could have someone from physics and someone from philosophy or history or whatever co-teach a course. Yeah, let's do that. Well, how are we going to um, count that towards their full-time equivalent? Well, you know, even though they're team teaching, we're going to make it, that's going to be their one course. Okay, then we need to hire an adjunct. Okay, well, we're going to get that money from. Well, well, what if we had them teach the course not at the same time or the same course at the same time, but a clustered course. Well, how are we going to work that in the schedule? Well, we need to make sure that, it, and then you get into these, the weeds, right? You get into the system, argue, you know, the practicality of the implementation, yeah. practicality, you know, in scare quotes, because it's scary, and then it all falls apart. Mm-hmm. So how did you get with Boston College? How did you get them around 
this idea of, well, the system itself is preventing the change because of the way the system is set up. Well, we tried it out. I mean, we basically would train the two teachers, to, the two different kinds of teachers to team teach. They had to learn how to do it because before, you know, it was something that it's not an obvious thing. One professor might think the other one is a TA for them. So they had to learn how to cooperate and do that. And then it's like everything else we do. We prototyped it. You know, we went out there, they tried it, they tried it, they learned how to do it, they tried it with students, and when they did, they found they had really great results. And that was really it. It was that sort of iterative process where people were um, not saying, here's the final way you must do it. It's like, let's try it out, let's see what goes when you try it the first time, and then you kept getting better and better with each successive um, experiment. Experimentation is hard in higher ed. Uh, you know, it's one of the things about the COVID moment right now is yeah. I have one of my classes I'm teaching. It's a course, and this is, you're going to love this because you recommended one of the books we're using. Mm -hmm. The course is called Data, Context, and Information. We're actually using the book Data Feminism. Awesome, awesome. That you recommended. Yeah, it's great. And I have, I think, 13 students in the class. There is not a shot if this was a regular semester. It'd be very difficult for me to get a class um, scheduled with only 12 or 13 students. Mm -hmm. At least in the way, you know, our classes don't go very big. You know, usually twenty-five to thirty, but also they like to keep them, you know, above a certain number. And twelve is thirteen is right on that edge. But because it's you know COVID and you know the numbers are down and overall for a lot of schools, it's okay. You know, they pass it through. My point is that a situation um, that is not normal is an opportunity to dissolve the norms, which traditionally constrain experimentation. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, that, that seems absolutely true. And one of the things I think um, schools are going to find, your school and every other school, is that the plan they spent all summer putting together is going to have to oh, yeah. change very quickly, probably in the next week or two, in ways they might not have anticipated. And that's the real test between the schools that I think are going to uh, iterate their way to success and those who are just going to have trouble, is that you have to be able to say, okay, we got to change. What next Let's move quickly and do it. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it, it was it was enough of a, a trial for a lot of schools, I think, to put those plans together all summer and to take all that training and all the other stuff. And now it's like, oh my god, you mean we've got to change again? We're teaching now, and it's like, yeah, that's what innovation is, and that's hard. It is. It's and this is one of the reasons why I'm teaching online exclusively this summer or this 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 fall is because it was the most stable. <laughs> thing I could do because I knew nothing was going to change it unless like, you know, the internet goes down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, you know, people who are starting out in the class doing an extended model, extended learning model, some kids in, some kids out, they might end up completely online. But I one, of the, one of the tricks here, I think, for a lot of faculty becomes not how do I innovate, but how do I constrain the opportunities of innovation? By that, I mean, there's so much you can do like discussion boards, like wikis, like making videos, like social media, like, hey, everybody, let's use Flipgrid. I'm going to have an Instagram account for the class where I'll be live streaming once occasionally. What's the appetite of the audience for all of the different content switching? I guess is a question. How do you, as a content creator, think about that? Because I think as a, there's, there's some important conversations for people who are teaching to think about, you know, just because you can do something innovative with technology doesn't mean you should. Well, I'll tell you something. I, th I think we've talked about this previously. One of the things I did, I found uh, when I work with uh, adult professionals on their writing, it's very different from working with like 18 or 19 year olds, is that um, when, they are, uh, when they want to learn, they're really committed to it and they'll really do it. 
And so, but they still had that sort of memory of their college writing courses. <laughs> and so I took a, a cue from my service design uh, friends and I redesigned the writing workshop and I turned it into a, basically a happy hour. And what we would do is we would get together, we'd rearrange the room so it was a bunch of couches and people would walk in and I'd be playing jazz. And everybody would come in and grab a beer and have nachos right. and we'd talk for 15 minutes before we even started. Right then, when everybody starts to get a little bit loose and relaxed, I start talking about sort of the uh, the romantic theory of of composition and the idea of your thought, first thought is your best thought, and you've got to line up your impulses to say to blurt out what you really feel first of all before you do anything. We talk about the beat generation, the romantic poets, and then I say, okay, everybody, pull up your professional profile, and they do. And I say, okay, now take that professional profile and tell me the one real story behind it that you could see there. You have, you have 30 minutes to write it. I want 300 words. Go. And now everybody's sitting there with their beer and they're telling me these stories. They're telling each other the stories. And by the time they're done and we, everybody goes around and reads, we get a real sense of all these things nobody knew about each other. And they've had to been forced to do this. Then I uh, teach them about Orwell's politics in the English language. And we learned about uh, six different ways to make your language clearer and uh, less cluttered. And I say, okay, now using these uh, points, go back and cut out a hundred words out of that story you just did. So by the time, so by the time they're done with this happy hour workshop, they've met each other, they've gotten over their fear, they've uh, learned to self-edit a little bit, and they've shared. Now I was like, I want to do this again, but I can't do it because we can't go back to the office. Part of the whole design of this is that we'd sit in the office with the lights were down a little bit low and the music was playing, and you can't replicate that online. And then I realized. Wait a minute! Everybody's doing online happy hours now, anyway. Everyone is doing that's, online. That's sure. a modality of experience that everybody's completely familiar with. So I'm actually redesigning that for a distance experience now for some of my colleagues, and we're I, we haven't tried it yet, but I'm super excited to see what a, a virtual happy hour looks like. And I think it might just work because, specifically because people know what a virtual happy hour is. Do you know what I mean? Right. And so that's not a, a strange thing. And it's not terribly difficult, by the way, through um, a virtual mixing board to pipe in, you know, music from Spotify or someplace else into the Zoom live stream. Yeah. Well, one of the things Pretty I learned is some people can't write and listen at the same time. So ah. while it might be good for the introductory parts in that, while they're writing, which I like to do, I maybe I, I back off a little bit on that. Thing. But you know, you learn. That's that's again the iterative experience. How much of this do you think? Whether it's like a, a professor like me. Or a manager, or you know, some other kind of leader in organization. How much of the fear of trying this kind of stuff is the fear of is the uncertainty of outcome and the giving up of control? A lot. There's a lot of fear involved. Fear gets in the way of all kinds of things. It's um, going back to humanism in some ways. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think the the good um, organization understands this fear and finds ways to make things more encourage psychological safety. You know. And I think part of that is involved in storytelling and part of that is involved in showing people at very high levels of an organization taking risks and not being punished when things don't go right. You know, uh, a real sense that um, that getting over your fear is a major step toward learning. And, right. and that that's more important than um, keeping things status quo. But it has to be demonstrated. It has to be proven. It has to be clear culturally that this is um, acceptable. It's a, that's a, that's a that's a big trick, right? Because 
and I've talked, I've ranted about this in a number of you know environments. Why not here? Again, is you know standardized testing, right? This idea of performing to some set of criteria. Going back to our checklist, right? That you need to perform to this set of criteria that have been explicitly laid out by someone else that is in a position of power to determine whether you succeeded or failed, right? And then that being replicated throughout life. You know, I, the biggest the biggest panic moment I see in my students is when I tell them they can choose whatever topic they want for their research papers. Yeah. And they go, well, what? and I, I tell them, you know, rather than writing a regular research paper in terms of the format, feel free to use images, feel free to use, desi- you, know, you know, design templates to kind of make it look more attractive. Feel free to use, you know, and they're like, they're, what I tell them, it's the, the indoor cat, outdoor cat. You're taking an indoor cat, throwing them outside, and then they jump back on the screen <laughs> with their claws on the screen door, me, you know, howling to come back inside because yeah, yeah. of the fear. Oh, yeah. One of the strange things I found is that uh, you get different um, responses on different social networks. In my job, I do a lot of work on LinkedIn, right. Twitter, and Facebook, right? And I, one of the things I've been trying to do is to humanize LinkedIn, which is – a hell of a hard thing to do, uh, because it's it's uh, at its base so transactional and right. so hierarchical and so all about I need work I want to sell you something, and right. you know and I and you know I'm the enti- entire opposite of that. So I've worked really hard to do that, but I found it really frustrating. Anyway, one of the things I've recently been trying and finding a massive amount of weird success is that I'm also a musician. Right, and I play uh, keyboards. And what mm-hmm. I do now, I like to do this on my own personal life, is go out into the world. During COVID, I would go on my front step, set up my keyboard, and play for the neighbors. And the neighbors would come by, and they'd wave everybody's happy in their mask. They'd come and sit on the lawns and listen. And I used to go and play in the public, uh, Newton, uh, in the center where I live, uh, on the green. I would play that we had pianos out there. And I would play there on the weekends, you know? Mm. And what I realized when it was a little bit safer to come out, I could bring my keyboard and I go out there and I set up and I play. And once in a while, somebody will come and take a video. Someone I know will come up and they'll shoot a video and send it back to me. And I just, for fun, posted this on LinkedIn just to see what happened. And I got a right. huge response. And I think part of that is that it's not, a, it's not words. It's pure music. It's not selling anything. And it, right. it got this uh, like unbelievably um, heavy amount of engagement, I think partially because I was treating the um, network as a different kind of network, like going far right. out of the way. And it was a little scary to do that. And I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but it, it was interesting to treat it as in a way you're not supposed to. Right. Right. But I could do that because no one was going to punish me. The worst that could happen is I'd be completely ignored or somebody said, shut up. Well, for some people, that is punishment, right? Yeah. The idea of being completely ignored is the, is the most horrifying idea in the world, right? I need to, I need to be recognized and acknowledged as, as existing. Please click like on this. Otherwise, you know, all my fears of being irrelevant will be reinforced. That's right. And I think part of my job and part of my own sort of professional sense is understanding that it really is about trying to achieve those standards of excellence in content and in conversation and not uh, falling prey to the numbers game and to always think about quality being greater than quantity, at least. In, in yeah. Because you can easily do that. And I think that um, you have to remind yourself that a lot because it's 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 easy to fall into that sense of oh the numbers are the whole story and that's it 
it's a it raises you know it raises a question. And this is what we always face with like assurance of learning. How do you measure it? Right. What's the what's the objective? What's the key result? How do you know whether you succeeded or not? And what's the time? Well, how how bounded are you by this? This is why I'm teaching this class on data, context, and information yeah. to raise these questions about you know the number is just a symbol. The right. meaning is something we attach to it, whatever the number is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked about this, you know, the, this idea that the time span of learning is the time span of learning really right. a semester? Is it a year? Is it a is it a four years or is it a lifetime? And you know, you've got to be able to look at the different um, time frames of your educational possibilities and see how you can really work within them as both a student and a teacher. And I think that's important, and that means having longer relationships. And being able to prolong those relationships, you know, I find right. that I still talk to people from my Jed Lab days. You know, the ones who are real, we're still learning with together, and uh, that's super valuable. And I, I think that's one thing you should tell your students, and I tell all my younger colleagues. It's like keep contact with everybody, you know, especially with right. the people you are learning with and from, and make that part of your life. Don't just because you go to a new job or a new field, a new industry or whatever, um, say goodbye. You know, keep regular, real contact with people, and it's hard to do. It really requires um, you've got to spend time and energy uh, in the effort, but it really is how you keep things going. You know? Yes, I mean, I absolutely do. And I, by the way, I just love the name Jed Lab. I think that's <laughs> that, that's the best name I've heard in a long time for right. something. Okay. What are you a member of Jed Lab? I don't know what it, you know. I I could not know what that means. I'd still want to join it. It's funny because people, used to, I, I know one person who said, jet lag, jet, you have jet lag? What's jet lag? And I said, oh, no. no, that's not it. Don't, 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 don't let them convince you otherwise. It's, it's, a, it's a great name. Jet lab is a great name. Yeah. I mean, this idea of creating quality content in a world in which like with, with Continuum, you need to create so much content, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I was looking at the Continuum's website um, today before we start chatting. There's a lot of stuff on there. Right. There's a lot of there there in terms of all the work that you do, all the work you propose to do, all the things you all are commenting on. Mm. It it kind of reminded me of like, you know, NASCAR in a way. <laughs> Say more. Yes. So NASCAR, it's like, you know, you watch the cars go around the track and you're like, Am I going to go to Lowe's because Jimmy Johnson has Lowe's on number 48? <laughs> no. Am I going to join the National Guard because, you know, whatever, somebody has National Guard on their car, whether it's Dale Jr. when he was driving or whoever is now. <laughs> but if you don't have it there, are you out of the conversation? You know what I mean? So it's like, it doesn't really, is it influencing anybody's behavior per se? Not necessarily. But if it's not there, are they invisible? Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. There is a ton of content. And there's a ton of content out there from our competitors as well. Right. That's what I mean, yeah. right? If you, if you didn't have a lot of content on your site, your competitors do to so, or someone looking at the two sites going, I don't know, those yeah. other guys, they got a lot of content on their site and uh, Continuum doesn't. Yeah. No. I mean, for me, it's largely about getting those individual voices. Do you know what I mean? Like right. the individual contributors and really sort of saying, it's not just your standard generic thing about innovation or design or business thinking. These are really special ideas. And I think that's right. hitting that individual note is really important to me as a sort of content person and a differentiator, you know? And how long has Continuum been around for, by the way? Over 30 years. I mean, we uh, became part of EPAM in 2018, March 2018, but we were down for three decades before that. 
So, you know, the number of pe- people saying, you know, what do you do? I, I, I do design work. I, I, I do design thinking. You're like, oh, I, you know, there's another one. So at what point does it become everyone does it? So therefore, you know, it's nothing to where, how do you maintain distinction in this saturated environment of human-centered design or participatory design or design thinking or whatever kind of design work or, you know, employee experience or customer experience or user experience? Student experience. How do you well, one of, maintain a specialness? No, I get well. One of the differences is actually our hit rate. Like a lot of people do a lot of design work behind the scenes that never gets implemented. A lot of our stuff actually does make it to market, and it makes uh-huh. a difference. And I think that's a real now. Hit rate is a hard number to um, compute, right? But we do know we've seen it time and time again that people who are working with us don't just enjoy working with us, which they do. But there's right. out there in the world. We've done uh, lots of different um, stuff that's made a difference in lots of different organizations. I think it's such a crucial thing to talk about the idea of implement of implementation. Yeah, I've done a little bit of study around enterprise implementations, enterprise system implementations, and you can have the you know the great you can we're gonna but you know what we're gonna do we're gonna get some post-it notes and we're gonna get a room with some whiteboards. And we're going to come up with a bunch of great ideas and we're going to, you know, get groups together and play these, these games. And we're going to put things on the board and we're going to take pictures of them and we're going to do all these things. And then we're going to deliver this product or this idea. And then, you know, what happens with it next? And so much falls apart at the implementation level. Yeah. What is it about what, what is it about your approach that allows for implementation to take place more successfully than otherwise we might find? We've done it. Like, I mean, we have actually made it happen. We've been through, we've seen many, many things actually gone through to the implementation stage. And I think part of it is just pointing to the things we've done. We did the Swiffer, we did the Reebok Punk, Swiffer. The Reebok Punk sneaker. We did some amazing things with Southwest Airlines and uh, with Jamba Juice. We've done stuff that's, you know, um, out there in the world. And it's, you point to those things. And I guess you, you show them to people who would be clients and say, take a look at what we've done. And, uh, right. and, and that's really part of the convincing, like, because a lot of what we're doing is, is say, we're talking about stuff that hasn't been invented yet. And you say, you have to trust us by looking at what we've done. And then we talk them through the process of these uh, different projects. And by telling a good story that really explains the process that shows them. And they're able to sort of the, do the math in their head saying, oh, 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 I can see where that would work out. Because you truly, innovation is a hard, we're, we're, you're basically suggesting we're going to do something for you that doesn't exist in the future. Right. And here's how you can trust us by looking at our what we've produced, looking at our hit rate. Have you ever, I mean, I'm trying to think how to frame this. Is it ever the situation where you're working with a client or, you know, continues working with a client and you're like, you know, we got these great ideas, but you're, as an organization, you're not there yet, right? You need culturally, organizationally to change things before we can even, t- you got to change you before we can implement these new ideas. Well, I'm not quite sure our, our uh, practitioners would say you got to change you, but they are really, really good at reframing issues for folks who've got the wrong thing they're looking at. Like one of our okay. is not to be yes people, but to be, I mean, they're paying us there to see what they can't see. And we take that, right. that responsibility, which is to say no, when we need to. And right. No. And, and that's, that's the real, the key part of it. 
Well, we were just chatting before we started recording about something that I was involved in with an organization. And they said they had this problem that we needed to solve. And really, yeah, that thing needed to be done. But before that could be done, they actually had these other things they had to address and reconcile to allow for this thing they wanted done to actually be successful. And so is that what you're talking about in terms of yeah. saying, yeah, okay, great. We can, we can do this thing that you're asking for, but before that, before that can be fully successful, there are also these other things or this other thing that we see that we, based on our experience, we really think you need to address. Yeah. I mean, we go in there with beginner's mind and slowly the beginner's mind meets the expert's mind or quickly maybe. And we, we, we look around and we see what's going on and we don't take anything for granted or for certain the way the client would probably maybe, you know? And it's really about saying, oh, no, 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 this is really what your problem is. This is what we need to work on. And to say that clearly and, and, and uh, with confidence is a hard thing to do. But that's a, a key part of uh, our process, I think. Yeah. And how do you think that, I mean, is it, is it that we're spending this money so we have to do it? Or do you, I mean, does, does the leadership need to be enlightened to really adopt that, uh, you know, that this, this shift in their thinking? Enlightenment helps, but you know every client is different. I, you can't generalize that way. No, I kind of want to though, because it'd be easier. I can't generalize that way. <laughs> you could. It'd be easier if I could, because then I could just say it's always that's a you know teaching you know management people right. It's always this way. Just yeah. do it this way, yeah. and you'll get that result. No, and that's one of the things is it's like uh, what we do is in paint by numbers. It really it is is situation specific. And, you know, you even got to explain that. And there's an educational component to that sometimes, but that's part of the gig is like, you have to understand that every project is different and requires its own attention. And it's that dialogue thing I'm talking about before. Right. It's like you really have to listen closely and respond um, authentically to what's going on here. Otherwise you're not doing your job. And that's really a huge part of it. And I think it goes to, if I, if I could guess here, even with your folks, you know, what's, what's the goal? Is the goal to get through this project as fast as possible so we can get on to the next project and get X number of projects per quarter so we can show we have a particular kind of growth? Or is it to have authentic relationships that, you know, take forever long they take? Like the Zappos, you know, call center. I don't care how long it takes you on the phone with this person. Um, have that connection versus, you know, we need a call turnover rate of, you know, three for every, you know, you know, half hour or whatever it is, or 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you've got to, ideally, you've got to stick to your, your timelines, which you've promised and, and stick. Right. With but you do have to, um, you do have to think beyond just what the normal parameters are. I think that's required. And sometimes that requires different tweaking one way or the other, but yeah. How embedded do you all become? I know, I know the answer to this, but I'm asking anyway, you know, the embedding process with an organization that you're working with to help them innovate ideas and in product or process or system along with identifying the avenues for implementing that. Yeah. We, we, one of the great things we do is we create the project room, which is kind of like the externalized brain of the project. And that room is where everybody goes to jam and we have our, our people in there and we have some clients come in and on the walls are sort of all the maps of all the thinking. And it really becomes a place where it's dedicated room for the project, you know, and that's where all the work gets done when you're not out doing um, field research, you know? Right. And so the, it, having that sort of uh, uh, project room, is inspiring. It's really excellent. It's a real, you, you walk into a project room and you can feel the energy of something new brewing up 
And uh, to be part of that, I think for our clients is is kind of exciting. It's I know it's exciting on on our end as well. But uh, but of course, now that we don't have the old project rooms, it's a different. Sure. It becomes more virtual, and figuring out what that means is, is 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 something we're working on. You know, to have this virtual project room. But you know, there have you experienced much with uh, mural or Miro? Although, sort of, yeah, you know, those kinds of worlds are replicating what's going on, and people are becoming more used to them, and they're in a way um, making the project room more shareable you know it, it, you can bridge more distance with stuff like that that people maybe couldn't do it with just a, a regular old real project room yeah it, the opportunities you know it's, it's again the idea of a time without norms right or where normalcy is broken down means that you can throw norms out the window to a certain extent so the loss of what well, we don't have a room anymore is the opportunity of well, what can we use to create this i mean you know to what extent can i use the green screen behind me as a teaching device, right? Yeah. Versus just something to obscure the mess that's behind me, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't know the answer to that, but those are the opportunity questions that we can start posing when we're in this kind of new environment. But it gets, it's exhausting at a certain point, right? It's just kind of like, good God almighty. Yeah, yeah. Um, the need for innovation is paramount. The amount of energy required to do it is too much. I feel like yeah. where a lot of people, a lot of organizations are headed for a burnout because they need this. They need so much just to keep going and to think what's coming next and to implement it. It's like there's all there's an enormous amount of burden on everyone, and we're all feeling it. And it's not going away anytime soon. And it it worries me a little bit um, just knowing what it costs, what innovation actually costs when you're just dedicated to it and doing nothing but that. When I think about right. everybody needs to do this now. And it's it's your it, everyone's being asked a lot, and it's it's a uh, challenge. I thought was I remember like when the pandemic started and things were shutting down. You started to see these posts like Newton created calculus during the plague. I'm like you bastards! I need that kind of pressure. <laughs> I'm I'm just trying to survive here. <laughs> I don't need to hear about creating calculus. And I think the, I think you're so right that there is this kind of you know well in some ways there's no longer a fear of missing out because people aren't doing much yeah. at least in Massachusetts um, at the same time there's a, a fear of missing out of you know what did you do during the pandemic how much sourdough bread did you make yeah 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 you know, to what extent did you you know repaint your house or you know what I mean oh yeah no and I, I feel I feel um, a real sense of empathy for people in sort of like the restaurant retail, worlds, right? Which uh, really have to completely rethink what they're doing. And, you know, restaurant worlds aren't used to doing that there. The restaurant is a very solid business model, or it has been right. for a long time. And now it's like, you you got to think of something else right now. Right. And that's, that's a tough thing, even for companies that have resources and their own innovations departments, thinking of something else is a big, big burden. And so it's like, you know, I... I um, Again, I worry that people are going to be facing the kind of burnout we see in sort of the healthcare field with the doctors yeah. been pushed. Like everybody's going to be pushed into that kind of uh, physician burnout mode, which is not healthy for anyone. It's 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 raising what I like, and I'm actually giving a webinar on this coming up. Um, the difference between patient experience and healthcare experience, yeah, and how many organizations, you know, going back to the ecosystem, you know, the experience ecosystem, jumping levels, going from the specific individual stakeholder to the broader ecosystem perspective, you know, as you said, the janitors, 
the you know allied health professionals, the doctors, the valets, right? I mean, I don't you know the people in the cafeteria. I don't know. I mean, who are all the stakeholders involved in this space, and how do we think compassionately about? what their experiences are like and also integrate them in the solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I think is amazing when they're talking about solutions for higher ed and they include sort of the administrations and the faculty and maybe the student. Well, what about the parents? What about the what about the 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 staff, you know? Facilities. What about the, the neighborhood? What about the alumni? What about you know? So the idea of creating a, like a truly democratic uh, innovation model is 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 foreign to a lot of organizations, uh, certainly to a higher ed, but I think that's something people need to take um, pretty seriously into consideration if they're going to um, come up with something better and something that really works. You know that that whole uh, um, the whole stakeholder model. We're moving from shareholder to stakeholder value, right? I think right. That's a great bit of rhetoric, but it has uh, it only works if you're going to really do that, and that requires leadership. To be really uh, to give the stakeholders a real place at the table, and and yeah. those who do will will benefit from it. I'm sure of it. But it's like it's it really is it requires a willingness at the top to up in the model, and then a willingness from the community at all to sort of step up and be part of it. And it's hard to make happen. And going back to your you know Boober, you know this idea of I and thou and dialogue. It's not that, and this is something that I come up against. It's not that everybody that what the design solution, whatever it is, it's not that everybody agrees with everything mm. that's there, and that's not going to necessarily going to be likely because you can have competing in you know competing perspectives, and there might be someone gains a little bit and someone what they want, someone loses what they want. Yeah, does everyone feel heard? Does everyone feel like it's fair? I mean, this idea of um, you know in, you know not just inclusion but equity, right? Uh, you know, there's diversity, equity, inclusion. Yeah, you're there, but it's also the sense that what we're trying to achieve is equitable, right? Even even if not completely egalitarian. You know, you know, I'm like, you know, maybe using words incorrectly here, trying to mix them all together. But it's not that you know professors are not going to have to work more, right? And that that we get to dictate things. But it's also that you know we are part of the process and understanding why that is the case. Yeah. And achieving that kind of dialogue in the stakeholder model. And it's not just if we just listen to everybody, the solution will be there and everyone will be happy. No, people are not going to be happy. Right. But in in their not being happy, do they at the same time accept the outcome? Yeah. I mean, it's like running a democratic government. You really have to um, accept the checks and balances. You have to accept what you know the people want. You have to accept there'll always be people who are unhappy, and you have to be able to sort of um manage them all. That's what good leaders do, right? They don't need to have that sort of uh, absolute control of the environment. Right. They understand that it's a dialogue and they're okay with it. And in fact, they welcome it. And again, it requires a special kind of leader who will do that, a special kind of culture that will encourage that. And not everybody's there. And even people who maybe think they are there aren't nearly there as much as they think they are. And it requires a certain amount of honesty, and it requires um, it requires a lot. I mean, th- the fact is, a lot more is is uh, needed to really make this kind of thing happen. And uh, you know, it's it's new for a lot of people, and we'll see who can do it. Faith in the system, got faith and trust in the system, because 
I think that's one of the things we're seeing right now, right? Is that people fundamentally lack faith and trust for you know whatever good or bad reason. And when that's eroded, you're not going to trust the process and you certainly aren't going to trust the outcome. Yeah. And you've got to, it requires it from, again, every level. It isn't just leaders, but it certainly is the leaders. They have to be able to be good faith leaders and they have to have the, this, the people who are in that environment have to be uh, willing to buy into it and work with it. So what's, what's coming up next for in terms of this design frontier that Continuum is embarking on in this current moment? What kind of opportunities, what kind of new things, what kind of exciting things are happening in the Continuum world that you are, you know, really re- gets, gets you engaged every day to come in and do virtual sessions and go to Miro to look at virtual whiteboards and things like that? Uh, oh, here's something we can actually talk about. We, um, okay. One of my colleagues is this guy, David Rose, who is, a, who is our in-house futurist. And he, used, he wrote a book called Enchanted Objects. And he's a super um, bright guy. And he uh, just did some work with AI coaching and using artificial intelligence to do sports coaching. And to teach people, he created an app with some colleagues to help um, work on your posture as you're doing yoga. And okay. It sort of uh, sort of allows you to match up where your actual posture is to where your ideal posture would be, and helps show you by doing side by side comparisons where this is supposed to be. And he just we just worked on a piece about this work um, about sort of AI coaching and the future of how artificial intelligence will work both at a sort of professional and elite and even amateur regular level. Right. How people can do their sports better. And it's really interesting stuff. Can I, on, on this, on the solution, can I either ramp up like more Bella Caroli or ramp up more Pete Carroll <laughs> or maybe, you know, ramp up yeah. a little bit more, um, you know, Bobby Knight yeah. or more John Wooden. So I can, I could, is there, is there an adjustment about how mean or nice I want the coach to be? Well, I think it would be more like you'd be able to sort of ramp up more Larry Bird or more Kobe or whoever. And he's like, who do I want to be more like? And it's like, okay. you're, you're really putting yourself in the, in the footsteps of the athletes. You could, I guess okay. the, the meanness of it, you could do that and you could change the tone, but this that might be a nice feature. Sure. <laughs> it's super cool though. It's really, it's really uh, interesting feature. And David also did an interesting thing with hand washing. He made some prototypes, uh, which I can send you the link to, to both of these pieces about to uh, when COVID was first getting going to get people to make sure they were washing their hands for 20 seconds. And we had uh, a bunch of prototypes, one of which sort of projected uh, germs onto your hands and it would take, oh, no way. <laughs> and it would take you 20 seconds to wash them all off, but you could visualize uh, the work that you were doing. And so this kind of thing, using these kind of um, uh, prototypes to sort of test that ideas is something that really is cool. And he's really brought to um, our uh, bag of tricks. So it seems that what gets you excited each day about going to continuum links back to this idea of humanism where you're using critical inquiry and introspection in the service of progress and helping others. I want to create dialogue to create that progress and, and really understand the human. I have a question, and that's for, you. I have a question for you. Cause yeah. my suspicion is that uh, like just the culture of tenure creates problems in an organization that no, you don't see in other kinds of organizations because people are so secure in their, and we, we talked about that sort of fear. Right. And I think that the, the job security of tenure uh, in some ways obliterates that fear, but it also creates a kind of stubbornness and, uh, and, uh, conservatism, uh, in some, right. in some people. 
And I, for sure, is is that a thing? It seems like that might be. But you're, you're yeah. I would say so. Uh, you know, speaking as a person with tenure, <laughs> I think that it's less. Look, people in their careers go through different kinds of phases, right? And this gets us back to this conversation about metrics. People go through different phases in their careers. Um, and this, I think schools, places of higher learning, not all of them, but many, have not provided an employee experience that takes that employee journey into account so that people are consistently evaluated on metrics that might be more suited for getting tenure Yep. Like publications and all those things versus where people's interests and might go. So I might not want, just speaking theoretically, I might not want to be publishing um, or doing like a lot of new research projects. What I might want to do is create more diverse content. Yeah. I might want to do a podcast. I might want to work with community organizations, extending my knowledge into different communities. In a lot of university systems, those things aren't counted. Right. And, and so then, is it not a matter of tenure and people no longer want to perform, is, or, or is it that organizations don't create an environment in which they can perform in ways that they find meaningful and that schools understand how to leverage to be valuable to whatever it is they're trying to do? Yeah, and I, I, as a content person, right, I actually feel for that, this idea of knowing what's a valuable Piece right. Of content, right? What does that valuable mean to an academic community, right? There, academic Twitter is a thing, and people yeah, who are big certainly that is are are producing some kind of value and have real influence that may be yeah. far outside of the amount of time they've spent as academics because they're good at social media, right? right. Does that count? You know, should it count? How much? That I've actually been working with my school a little bit, and I've created alternative impact areas. To address these issues, yeah, right. Public scholarships a thing. Community scholarship is a thing. Yeah. Organizational scholarship is a thing. Yeah, and schools don't acknowledge those at their peril because faculty may be very adept, very skilled at engaging in those kinds of areas. But then schools only care about certain. Why? Because rankings. Yeah. Why? Because grants. So it becomes self-serving. So it's not about the fact. It, it's not about enhancing the employee experience of the faculty member. It's about enhancing the reputation and ranking and financial input of the school. Yeah. And so going back to this dialogue, right? Has the school engaged in conversation with faculty across the journey to understand what things are of value to them? Have they done the assets mapping? Have they thought creatively about how to innovate those skill sets in a way that not only enhances the people's experiences, but enhances the brand of the school? Those are really exciting opportunities that where tenure um, allows people to be more risk-taking and innovative, mm-hmm. right? Versus feeling like they're trapped in a system that they no longer are as you know eager to participate in. Yeah, it's tough. And I, I definitely feel that because what you want from a university community is that sort of academic freedom, right? That's the whole yeah. point of tenure, tenure. But, but yeah. we also know, I mean, we see what happens with all the um, younger faculty and all the adjunct faculty and what's going on there. It's, it's sort of like um, something's got to shake out. We've got to figure out how to, how to make it uh, better. Well, I, I, you don't, you don't want to get me involved in the hot, my hot takes on adjunct work because <laughs> I, I, have, I have a hot take on there people would not want to hear. Well, it is, it is not as uh, uh, no, one, no, one, no one makes you be an adjunct. Ooh. No one makes you be an adjunct. And it's the only, 
how I feel for adjuncts. I, you know, there's any number of people out there in the world who go to school for a particular job, yeah, who can't get work in that particular job, who then have to find other opportunities in other job areas. And the biggest failure of academic institutions for preparing, especially PhDs, mm-hmm. is that they don't give them the skills to allow them to participate in alternative labor markets that are non-academic. Yeah. No, that makes- that's that that that's the problem. It's not that because there aren't going to be academic jobs, adjunct, you know, you just don't don't be an adjunct, but they don't know what else to do because that's all they've that's all they've been trained to do. And then the you know, the rug is pulled out from underneath them, so then they're lost and the schools don't do anything to prepare them adequately for alternative kinds of opportunities. I, I agree with that. And I think part of that is sort of that more general lack of imagination that people have, that organizations have, which is why it's so hard yeah. for people to pivot. Like I think part of um, our educational system from the early stages should be understanding how to um, use your imagination to change your life. Yes. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Thinking in those ways and even, you know, using, let's say English as a way to spark imagination and create alternative lives for yourself from the earliest of ages. And then sort of like an implementation phase. I don't know what that would look like, but I could easily imagine teaching journey mapping for as a life skill. um, Yeah. And using uh, the English class as a way to sort of uh, create, future scenarios for yourself and then sort of some sort of mediating um, here's how you start planning a thing to do. Now my, with my kids, I've been talking to my kids their whole lives about um, thinking about who they want to be and what they want to do and, right. and sort of using this sort of dialogic approach to uh, finding their own right teachers and making their own right connections and learning the right stuff and not right. on the school's curriculum to give it to them. Right. And I think that, uh, trying to open up their imaginations to that is key. You know, I've always done that myself and I always do that with my colleagues who I'm working with. And that's part of the innovation process is to see things that might be there that could be there. Right. Right. And then, you know, testing it in the real world is, the, is you know, that's the uh, EPAM continuum thing is like, okay, here's your thesis. Let's try it with people. What do they think? Does it work for them? Yes. No. Next step. You know? Right. Right. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done for you and it sounds exciting. And as always, it's always an interesting conversation. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, um, chatting with me, Gary. This is nice. We want to thank Ken Gordon for exploring some of the challenging issues of our time in an online world, especially around communicating and connecting with other people. We also appreciate taking us inside some of the work that EPAM Continuum does right now and the future trajectory of their work check out all the content that can creates through EPAN Continuum's channels on LinkedIn, Twitter, and their website. And as always, you can communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That is feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We'd love to hear from you and we enjoy having your feedback as well as topics or persons you want to hear more about. There's a ton of experiences out there in the world, actually probably limitless options. So whatever you want to hear most about, we want to hear about it and we'll make a show just for you. If you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, you can head on over to our website, experiencexdesign.com, to stay on top of all of the latest pod news. We'll see you next week, everybody. Take care. Bye.